Fualsha, 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 Akharja Gale. This is episode 81 of the Rebel Matters podcast and this week's guest on the show is Lawrence McGeown. Lawrence spent 16 years in jail in the H-blocks between the years of 1976 and 1992 as an IRA prisoner of war and also took part in the 1980 hunger strike. Lawrence spent 70 days without food in the hunger strike that ended in the death of 10 Republican prisoners of war, led by Bobby Sands, who started the strike on the 1st of March 1981. Lawrence has been involved in the writing of two books. The first one that was published in 1994 is called Nor Meekly Serve My Time, The H-Block Struggle, 1976-1981, and that was co-written with Brian Campbell and Phil Mohagan. And the second, which was published in 2001, is called Out of Time, Irish Republican Prisoners, Long Cash, 1972-2000. He also co-founded the Belfast Film Festival and has been involved in quite a few projects on the stage and on the screen. He co-wrote the film H3 with Brian Campbell, which came out in 2001 and was also involved in the writing of the play The Laughter of Our Children, which was also in 2001, and A Cold House, which came out in 2003. The official version is another play that was written by Lawrence, which came out in September 2006. So I would highly recommend going and checking out some of his work after you've heard him tell a bit of his story over the course of the next hour or so. When I'm looking back over the last 80 episodes of the show so far and taking into account the amount of people that have listened to each individual show and the feedback that the listeners send in via social media and through the Patreon. I know that the episodes were we're talking about something that has got to do with the conflict in Ireland have been amongst the most popular and I'm also aware that often enough it's the first time that people are hearing this particular perspective, the perspective that's been talked about or presented on the show here. So I do like to put things into a little bit of context, so I want to give you um, a bit of a starting point for this episode with Lawrence in terms of the dates and the timeline that the events that we're talking about in this episode happened in, and I'm going to do that in just a minute. But as I mentioned before, the podcast really is in a state of transition at the minute. Vicky Langan has come on as the producer, and to be honest with you, it was kind of touch and go whether or not we were going to keep the show on the road during the lockdown I think we put out about 15 or 16 episodes and that was before Vicky came on it was still very much a kind of a solo project for me with the the help of friends here and there as well um, the likes of Emmett Walsh who designed the new logo for us and Cahill who was doing the artwork for us last year but pretty much it was very much a, a solo project and then when Ackley opened up again in at the end of June, it was very clear that it was going to be a really big challenge to keep the Rebel Matters podcast on the road because it's been very much kind of like a hobby or kind of a side project over the last number of years. And it was with the help of the people who have been supporting the show on Patreon over the last year or so that... Vicky was able to come on board as a producer and it really has been a game changer. Vicky has been organising interviews and setting up chats 
and we've really just had a deep look at how the show is being produced and what our goals are for the show. And it's expanded our kind of vision and our ambition for the show a lot as well. Um, there's a really big difference between where the show started back in uh, May of 2017. It really started off as a project just to get to meet people and have chats with them and also to give people who might not have had much of an opportunity to share their stories uh, a platform where they could do that and where we could we could hear kind of an alternative point of view and a point of view that might not be as easily found in the mainstream media and that still is the goal of the podcast. We're always here to give people uh, artists and scallywags and experts and activists a platform to tell our stories and it has gone from strength to strength. I'm really glad that we were able to keep the show on the road. That is a massive thank you to everyone who has supported the show on Patreon that, that has made that possible. So, Gurukhead Mila Maigov. Gurukhead Mila 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 Maigov. And the transition period now for the show is really to get the show from a little side project that I have on the go that is sort of susceptible to. Uh, taking a hit whenever I have to go and get involved in another project most of the time it's with Ackley when Ackley needs a lot of my attention the podcast tends to suffer and we want to take the show from that state to being a more established and long-term project that um, that's like kind of what it deserves to be like it needs time it needs love and it needs um the attention and it needs the work to be put into it to make it that long-term project to um, be able to keep on giving people this platform, going to meet people, organising events and keeping the show and the production of the show to a really high standard and to grow and keep growing so that we can widen the audience that we have and keep on meeting all the legends that we have on the show. So as part of that, we've had a little look at the Patreon setup. And for anyone who's not familiar with it or who's new to listening to the show, Patreon is a platform where you can support your favourite artists or podcasts or producers um, or creators by subscribing to their their Patreon account. We have got three tiers set up, which I'll have a little chat about in a second. But our goal for the Patreon is to have 100 patrons by the 100th episode, which is 20 episodes away if you include this one. And the motivation behind that is to help us keep the show on the road, help us keep on giving people that platform, meeting people, and overall to help us to fuck shit up a wee bit and throw the cat amongst the pigeons whenever we have the opportunity to do so. So if you want to help us do that, then this would be a very good time to support the show on Patreon because of the fact that we're in this transition period and we're doing an absolute mountain of work up front right now to try and establish the show a little bit better and to kind of set it up for the long run. So if you were thinking about supporting the show on Patreon, then this would be the time to do it. And there are also other ways of supporting the Rebel Matters podcast and helping us achieve our goals. If you're not in a position to support the show through Patreon itself and what you can do is leave the show a review on 
the podcast app or on iTunes and share it on your social media. That makes a massive difference. And even just to know that the show is being shared around and the people are listening to it and to get people's feedback through social media is a really good boost as well. So there's a couple of ways that you can help to support the podcast and uh, keep petrol in the tank, as I say, which actually isn't a metaphor. We've got, we have got plans to travel to meet people and do in-person podcasts where the online kind of setup isn't really suitable to the kind of show that we want to do. Uh, I don't want to say too much about that because we'll have some really exciting plans, but I'm going to keep them in the back pocket until they're a little bit further developed. But if you are considering going to the Patreon, then we'll have three separate tiers. The first tier, all of the three tiers are based on native Irish trees because like trees are class. And the first tier is the willow tree. The second tier is the oak tree tier. And the third tier is the ash tree tier. I think the ash is my favourite Irish tree, probably because that's what Harleys are made out of. But we have a few new things in the pipeline. I literally just picked up today a thousand brand new Rebel Matters podcast stickers with that logo that Emmett Walsh designed for us not so long ago. They are lovely waterproof vinyl stickers. Funny enough, whenever I picked them up, I thought they were going to come kind of... uh, already chopped up but they came on these massive sheets 250 stickers on each sheet it looked like rebel matters podcast wallpaper so i spent an hour or two chopping them up with a stanley knife and a guillotine so that they're all individually cut we also put in an order recently for 200 metal pin badges from left wing badges that was recommended to us by Donald Fallon, who was a guest on the show and who has got his own really good podcast, Three Castles Burning, which is really worth checking out. So they're on the way. They should be here in two weeks. And something that I am extremely excited about is we have commissioned a piece of art by Emmett Walsh, who is Jowl666 on Instagram and who also does the artwork for Kneecap. Incidentally, Kneecap have launched a brand new website and... Uh, merch shop and it is kneecap.ie actually launched it today the day that I'm recording this which is Wednesday the 16th they've got some class new merch so you can go and check that out and that's been designed by Emmett as well but Emmett is designing uh, sorry Emmett is creating a piece of art for us to go with the top tier of the the top tier of the Patreon page that we have and that's a work in progress so all will be revealed in time but we're putting a way bigger effort into the Patreon at the minute to help um, show the supporters of the show that we really appreciate all of you and your support means a lot to us and is really helping us um, to keep the show on the road so that's that as I was saying earlier I am very aware that whenever we have these types of episodes that sometimes it's the first time that people are hearing these kinds of stories and this perspective and especially on such a personal level and that's with the backdrop of all of the misinformation and censorship that surrounded the conflict in the north because of the way that the free state media 
and the English media wanted to portray the conflict in a certain light that suited their narrative that for the vast majority of the time wasn't reflective of what was actually happening on the streets of Belfast and Derry and in all the other parts of the occupied six counties. So I suppose that some of these episodes do kind of, they serve as a kind of a starting point if you want to learn more about the conflict in Ireland. And uh, it's impossible to cover everything in any podcast episode, but they do serve as a good kind of launch pad where you can go off and find out a bit more about the stuff that we're talking about if you're interested in it. So with that in mind, I wanted to give you maybe a quick timeline of some significant events that surround kind of the things that we're talking about here in the episode with Lawrence. Anytime someone comes up to Belfast to visit or I go up with them and I'm showing them around, one of the first ports of call is to go to Bombay Street on the Falls Road. That Bombay Street was burnt to the ground by a loyalist mob who came in there on the 15th of August, 1969. And a 15-year-old Thane, Gerald McCauley, was shot dead while he was trying to protect the area from the incoming mob. And oftentimes that's kind of the event that people say that was the start of the conflict. And... Depending on what way you look at it, there may be a certain amount of accuracy in that, in the sense that that may have been a time where people started to organise against the state forces that were so openly discriminating against uh, people who lived in predominantly working class Catholic areas. But the thing to understand is that discrimination against Catholic communities and especially working class Catholic communities was going on since the partition of Ireland and the events in 1969 weren't the beginning of what became known as the Troubles and wasn't the beginning of the war with England but it was I suppose kind of a peak in tensions and a peak in how overtly the British state was willing to support the oppression of the Catholic communities in that part of Ireland. So Bombay Street was burnt out on the 15th of August. In 1970, between the 3rd and 5th of July, the British army were in and put the Lower Falls Road under curfew and wouldn't allow food or drinks or anything like that to come in, supplies to come in to the people. The curfew was broken when people from further up the road, mostly women, came down the road with supplies for the people who were under curfew and marched past the British soldiers and therefore lifted the curfew. On the 9th to the 10th of August, the British government introduced internment without trial where they were going around and arresting people and bringing them to the Long Cash internment camp on the outskirts of Belfast and that's something that Lawrence talks about in the chat that's coming up after this wee introduction. 
when people were being arrested through internment without trial, the prisoners had a special category kind of a status and it was widely accepted that the people who were being arrested during internment without trial were political prisoners. They were being arrested because of the political situation that was unfolding at the time. But the British government had other ideas because of that thing that I mentioned earlier on about wanting people to buy into the narrative that suited them and the narrative that suited the British government at the time and that still suits them to a large extent when they're talking about the conflict in the North is that it was kind of like tribal faction fights against two parts of the native population in Ireland that didn't like each other because they had religious disagreements and that it was kind of a localised problem where people just hated each other because they believed in different types of religion which is absolute bollocks what the British government were doing were occupying a piece of Ireland for their own gain and upholding a, a very biased and sectarian state in the north of Ireland so that a small group of people could hold on to a very disproportionate amount of power and you don't have to scratch beneath the surface very far to um, establish the facts of that matter when you look at discrimination in housing in education in employment and unequal um, voting opportunities then it's very clear that the conflict in the north didn't stem from religious differences but it stemmed from occupation, oppression and colonialisation by the Brits so the political status was being the British government wanted to remove the political status that the prisoners of war had when they were being interned and the prison camp that they were being sent to in the Long Cache was made up of Nissen huts and the prisoners had the ability to associate with each other, organise themselves, uh, maintain whatever form of structure that they wanted when they were inside there in terms of education and recreation. And the Brits wanted to, to remove this, so they built the H-Blocks Maximum Security Prison and decided that anyone who was sentenced uh, after the 1st of March in 1976 would no longer have political status but would be treated as a common criminal. And this was set up to break the prisoners and to break the Republican movement. The first person to be sentenced into the H-Blocks was Kieran Nugent. And as you'll hear Lawrence talking about, and as is well documented and discussed in other episodes, Shana Brathnack talked about this in the episode uh, that we did together. If you look back on that there, if you're happy enough to 
be uh, able to listen to the episode Ask Yuliga. Kieran Nugent is famous for telling the prison guards that if they wanted him to wear the prison uniform, then they would have to nail it to his back because of the fact that the prison uniform, the state-issued prison uniform, was kind of a symbol of kind of acceptance of the prison regime and the criminalisation of Irish Republican prisoners of war. So he didn't wear the prison uniform and he was put into his cell naked and eventually given a blanket and that started the blanket protest on the 14th of September 1976. In April 1978 and after many more men had been committed to the H-blocks the no-wash protest started on account of the brutality of the prison guards and the inability of the prisoners to slap out of their cells. So they therefore had to start the no-wash protest, which Lawrence also talks about in the episode. The no-wash the no protest eventually culminated in a hunger strike led by Brendan Hughes, who was the officer commandant of the prisoners in the haste blocks at the time. In October, the 27th of October 1980, and that went on until the 18th of December when that hunger strike was finished. And essentially the prisoners were dirty joed by the, Br- the British government and the Brits then went back on the arrangements that they had made with the prisoners to grant them political status in return for bringing the hunger strike to an end. So in 1981, Bobby Sands was the OC of the prisoners in the Haste Blocks and on the 1st of March, he started his own hunger strike where he went 66 days without food. The second hunger strike was organised differently as Lawrence speaks about and this was the hunger strike that Lawrence himself took part in and went, as I was saying, for 70 days without food. The 1981 hunger strike lasted from the 1st of March 1981 till the 20th of August 1981 and at the end, 10 Republican prisoners of war had lost their lives and as a mark of respect for that sacrifice I want to read out the names of all the volunteers who lost their lives on the 1981 hunger strike. IRA volunteer Bobby Sands started his fast on the 1st of March 1981 when 66 days without food and died on the 5th of May 1981 is 27. Francis Hughes, IRA volunteer, started his fast on the 15th of March and after 59 days lost his life on the 12th of May 1981, age 25. IRA volunteer Raymond McCreesh started his fast on the 22nd of March, went 61 days without food and passed away on the 21st of May 1981, age 24. Patsy O'Hara who was an INLA volunteer, started his fast on the 22nd of March, went 61 days without food, passed away on the 21st of May, age 23. IRA volunteer Joe McDonnell started his fast on the 8th of May, 1981, went 61 days without food and passed away on the 8th of July, age 29. IRA volunteer Martin Herson started his fast on the 28th of May, 1981, 
went 46 days without food and passed away on the 13th of July, 1981, age 24. ANLA volunteer Kevin Lynch started the hunger strike on the 23rd of May, went 71 days without food and died on the 1st of August, 1981, age 25. IRA volunteer Kieran Doherty started the hunger strike on the 22nd of May, lasted 73 days on hunger strike and died on the 2nd of August, 1981, age 25. IRA volunteer Thomas McElwee started the hunger strike on the 8th of June, went 62 days without food and passed away on the 8th of August, 1981, age 23. Michael Devine, INLA volunteer, started his hunger strike on the 22nd of June, went 60 days without food, passed away on the 20th of August, 1981, age 27. The 1981 hunger strike had an immeasurable impact on the direction of the Republican movement and the struggle for freedom in Ireland. It's extremely likely that Lawrence would have been the next person on that list had the hunger strike continued. So I'm very grateful that we were able to spend this time together and very grateful for Lawrence for sharing a story with us here on the podcast. To go along with this episode, I made a playlist on Spotify. If you want to find me on Spotify, if you just type in on Low Carlan, I come up. My profile has got a little picture of me sitting in a colourful Adidas tracksuit and the playlist that I've made for this episode is called 10. And it's got some really great songs on it celebrating the lives of the hunger strikers and um, songs that were written in memory of the people who gave their lives on the 1981 hunger strike. The first song is called the Hates Block Song and there's a line in that song I'll wear no convicts uniform nor meekly serve my time and that's where the title for Lawrence's first book came from. There is the song from Marcella, sung by Bick McFarlane, in honour of Bobby Sands, the boy from Tom Liddoff, by Christy Moore, um, about Francis Hughes. Again, Christy Moore, The Southern Winds, a song in memory of uh, Ray McCreesh. There's The Time Has Come, uh, sung by the late Brian Moore and it's actually under on the playlist as Patsy O'Hara but you might know that song as The Time Has Come which Christy Moore also sings a lovely version of it Joe McDonnell sang by Cruncher who many people in Belfast will know for singing rebel songs Martin Herson and the Kevin Lynch song by the Irish Brigade Kieran's song in honour of Kieran Doherty and McElwee's Farewell by a band called The Foggy Jew and I actually couldn't find the song on Spotify in honour of Mickey Devine who was the last of the ten today on Hunger Strike there is a song on YouTube called The Ultimate Sacrifice that is written in honour of Mickey Devine 
but I put in the Irish Brigade singing a song called The Roll of Honour where all of the hunger strikers including Maggie Devine get a good strong mention so you can go and follow that playlist or follow me on Spotify if you want to um, listen to those songs there's loads of songs about the hunger strikers out there but I wanted to pick one for each um, so there's one song for each hunger striker and then the haste block song at the very beginning so I think it's time to get stuck into this chat with Lawrence McGowan so um, give it your time and your attention and uh, listen to part of the story we were restricted for time when we were recording this episode and as I was saying earlier there just aren't enough hours in a day to record the entirety of the stories of people who were involved in the prison struggle and just the people on the street who went through the very tough times of the conflict in the north of Ireland but we covered quite a lot nonetheless in the next hour we talked about the perception that people in the south have a lot of time about what happened in the occupied six counties how Lawrence got involved in a republican movement in the first place his time in the H-blocks on the no wash protest and the blanket protest and on hunger strike so Shadeva Karja episode 81 of the Rebel Matters podcast Le Lawrence McGeown Gurmila Margaret as a chapter in Clare or Dewsborough. No, Albert. I would imagine that this will be the first time that a lot of people who listen to the podcast will um, sit down, you know, and like get get to hear a story like your own. It's a great platform to widen people's, uh, you know, like knowledge about the things that went on uh, only up the road from where we are down here in Cork now at the minute. Yeah, I'm always intrigued by. Um... There's no real nice way to say the, the level of ignorance that sometimes there is in the south of the country. And it's all due to Section 31 censorship. Uh, Sinn Féin banned off the airwaves to ridiculous lengths. Like I remember uh, Larry O'Toole, who was the shop steward for um, striking workers one time. And because he was also a member of Sinn Féin, he couldn't be interviewed about the strike. You know? So you can see how there's a, <clears throat> a distortion over the years where um, local people from the north uh, who lived in Republican communities weren't just uh, getting the opportunity to, to have their opinions voiced. And it was a very skewed um, reportage on the north. And I think it happened. I think a lot of that has changed significantly in the last um, couple of decades. But I still think there's, um, I think there's still quite a gap in the in the knowledge, and uh, not just a gap in the knowledge, but 
um, a bit of antagonism towards uh, towards the North, dare I say. <laughs> I would say that probably anyone who grew up in the six counties and who came down to the South has probably experienced that to some degree or another. Like I remember the first time I came across the sort of the uh, discrepancy of, between what I thought was my understanding of what was happening and what, and what people in yep. the south, south thought was happening. I was, in 2003, I started university in Limerick and it was on the Freshers' Week. Someone came over, you like Freshers' Week, you're sitting there making all new friends and all. And I was down there on my own and didn't know anybody and I was wearing my Antrim top everywhere. And someone came over to me, like this fella that only knew him just for one day. And he goes to me, here, here, here. He goes, that girl over there is a Protestant. You must hate yeah, her probably. guts. And I was like, I just was really taken aback by it because uh, that, well, I suppose it kind of ties in with their narrative that a lot of people in the South would have been fed about what was happening in the North, that it was kind of a yep, yep. religious conflict and two groups of, uh, two, two different communities who just don't get along for re- religious reasons, which couldn't be further from the truth. And, and totally, and I mean, that's even the, the worst element of the ignorance that uh, they then attribute uh, opinions to you or beliefs to you, which uh, they never actually asked you. This is how you think they just sort of assume. But yeah, as you're saying, the yeah, for me it was never a religious war. And I grew up in a very mixed area. I grew up in um, outside Randallstown in County Antrim, between the village of Randallstown and the town of Antrim. Um, which ironically, going back to the time of United Irishmen, was a very uh, strong place with battles around uh, around Antrim and at Randallstown too, and. Um, and elsewhere, up around that, that, that region. But a very mixed area where I lived was probably more predominantly Protestant. But that time you grew up, you didn't, I mean, you didn't think in religious terms at all. Uh, we're farmers beside us, um, and particularly the, the Warwicks, um, Davy and Mary and Willie and Sammy. And uh, Sammy actually funny, used to come into our house on a Sunday evening and read the, what would have been the Irish Sunday papers, Sunday press, and... Uh, Probably something independent of all this time my father would have would have caught. Uh, which always intrigued me in later years, thinking back that um, he'd had that maybe just had an interest in reading and probably there was nowhere else he was going to come across the Sunday press or whatever. But so it was a very mixed area, yes, and um, as you say there, like my own parents would be the same, like any idea of treating somebody different because of religion would have been just outrageous. Um the very happy memories of them and uh and actually to remember learning to drive drive a tractor when I was 10 years of age, uh, helping the Warwicks out and the gathering up the hay. So, no, definitely never uh, a religious war. And that's, and that's double in the sort of experience I had. Growing up there, I went to a very local, um, small country school. Uh, really funny here, but it, it was called Foreign Fluff, but it was spelt no one, in English, F-A-R-I-N-F-L-O-U-G-H. And... Um, the year I was leaving it was the last year that it was closed, not a small country. I mean, there was only two rooms, and you had seven classes split between the two rooms. And I did the 11 plus at the time and um, and got it. Um, I had wanted that time to go to Antrim Technical College. Um, they had up until then taken people at 11, straight from primaries, but that year they decided to end that. And uh, I ended up going to some Malachy's in Belfast for a short time. So I moved from what was a very, very small country school to the largest grammar school in Belfast, which I just couldn't handle at all, the formality or anything else, and started to mitch and, and whatever. But what I really remember the first day, obviously, you're a Gilgore, um, 
been asked in the class in Somalia, you know, what school did you previous go to? And people wanted things like St. Pat's or St. Catherine's or whatever they were. They're all saints anyway. And then I went to Foreign Flock and everybody started laughing. And it just sounded such a ridiculous term. And it was only years later, as I was pacing up and down a cell naked during the, uh, the blanket protest and the H plugs, I was learning the Irish. And they've got uh, the word for sort of a town land and all the rest of it, foreign, and then suddenly put a flock to it and, and realised that uh, the school I'd went to, foreign flock meant wet town land. And there was, there was a dam out the back that had been used as an old flax dam for decades. Uh, so now I suddenly became very proud of the fact that I'd went to a primary school that had the original Irish roots to it, um, even if even if they were um, anglicised. And that was our thing growing up in the area I grew up in was Corn Granny uh, and Drum Sioux. So it's interesting all those names, all the townlands were all the original Irish. I'm just thinking, it's funny you were saying that about uh, learning how to drive a tractor at 10 years of age because it probably ties in with your experience at St. Malachy's. But see, like, all of us up in the city, like, that was our perception of anybody who grew up in the countryside was that oh. they were driving tractors and throwing bales of hair around from the no age. And I, my experience from being up in Randallstown is just going up and training with Antrim, the Antrim Hurling team, team up there from under 16 uh, all the way into the senior levels and uh, hurled against and hurled with Colin Duffin as well. Right. Randallstown uh, cl- clan. Um, so how, how did you end up then uh, getting involved in, in the Republican movement? Was that after you finished secondary school? Well, what happened, uh, I mean, very quickly, um, update, like that's where we lived at originally, uh, like a lot of people lived in a house, there's no running water, electricity, or anything, like looking back on it now, it's all seems, I tell my daughters, they laugh at it and roll their eyes, so, you know, that... Uh, had, you, had you moved up to Belfast altogether? When no, you no, no, I travelled, travelled up, um, which is what I hate about it too, it was about an hour between riding a bike down to get a bus to take a bus up. There was like a fair number of people from around the town to Bridge, went to some Malachys that time, um, and a couple of them like himself ended up in jail, so... Uh, but anyway, um, around that time they were building the M2 motorway and it went straight through our house and we had to build a new house. And this is one of the things I found fascinating in later years and didn't know it at the time. Um, my father had a, yeah, he wanted to build a bungalow beside my grandmother's house just a couple of miles down the road, uh, which brought us closer to Ranthelstown. But a friend of his, Protestant guy, Billy Burns, had previously, about three years previously, built a bungalow uh, just up the road from us. So my father asked him for the plans of his house and he got them and submitted them. And one of the uh, campaigns at the time by the Civil Rights Committee uh, was on an end of discrimination in housing and employment. And well, that was our main demand along with one man, one vote. Or one purse, one vote, as it now should be. Um, part of their... Um, well, what they were challenging was it was the local councils who at that time decided on housing allocation and passing of plans, etc., etc. Anyway, Billy gave my dad the plans, fair enough, he copied them, set them into the council, and the council knocked them back to this house couldn't be built. And it was only when they were challenged, probably only time, like, my father was a fairly meek sort of uh, man, just fan driver. Desperation needed to build a house, uh, got a, a solicitor and informed the council that the exact same plans had been like, passed by the exact same council, in fact, by the exact same councillors just three years previously. So how could there be a problem with them? And uh, a lot of red faces, and they, they ended up dropping, I think there had been some like 39 initial objections that were dropped to a minor face in one of, of, of moving the wall. And it's always interesting, you know, when you talk about all oh, the civil rights was about this or about that, and 
Sometimes when you realise later that it was actually affecting your own family and that was what they were used to. And anyway, we, we got the plans, we got the house, we moved down to it, we now had electricity and with TV. I thought I started watching the, um, the debates going on at the time. And my father and mother weren't political at all. In fact, most of the people I met throughout the rest of my life who ended up in the IRA or ended up in prison didn't come from families who were Republican because Republicanism wasn't a very vibrant thing in the, uh, in the 60s in the North. You could point out the actual Republican families, the Hannaways, the Adamses, the Hagans, whatever. Um, but my father got very animated listening to like Bernard Devlin and uh, people like Jerry Thitt and Paddy Devlin and all. And I realised what later years again it was that he was hearing on TV and the power of TV. And he was hearing on TV people expressing uh, what he had experienced growing up, which was he was basically second class citizens in uh, in the north of Ireland. And that got me more and more interested. And then I suppose for me the turning point was by the time I was about sixteen and still wasn't involved in anything, but the Ulster Defence Regiment was established. The Ulster Defence Regiment was meant to replace the B specials who had an atrocious reputation, they've been guilty of killing Catholics, uh, beating people up, shooting them and everything else. A legal legal force, there were the B specials. I mean there was the RUC, there was a, one time the A specials, the B specials and the C specials, so like the northern state was certainly well armed. Um, because of the uproar about the antics of the B specials, they were done away with in the Ulster Defence Regiment, or UDR as it was, was was formed. It was the largest regiment of the British Army. And was largely Protestant, overwhelmingly, I think about 90%, 92% or something. And people who I knew in Randallstown that time, we knocked about with guys who were a bit older than us, um, playing football and whatever. And I remember then the first night we got stopped, a mate of mine had an old Beatle car, uh, he's only a few years older than me, about 18, 19. And we were stopping these people who we knew, and the guy asking me, what's your name, where are you coming from, where are you going to? And he was actually embarrassed or he felt very awkward doing it because he knew me. Like, he knew me and I knew his name. But the second and third time it happened, embarrassment had gone and now there was the open hostility. And I think it was at that point I realised, even though I grew up in a very mixed community, even though it was very, very good Protestant neighbours, that there were two communities, but it wasn't about what church you worshipped at on a Sunday. It was that one side of the community uh, was armed, had uniforms and was armed, and the other side, our side, wasn't. And basically, they could do with us what they wanted, which is what they started doing. They said, stopped in hell for ages when they take an enter in barracks for nothing. Even the RUC were embarrassed, like, why, why are you bringing these people here? You know, it's like four o'clock in the morning. So there's those type of influences that led me to the belief, when I was still 16, that um, the only way to, to deal with this was to join the, the Irish Republican Army. You see that thing you're saying there about the VR, and this is maybe this is like years and years later on. Like our mum is from Dublin, and the first time that I realised that there was anything actually that unusual going on in the north was when she was explaining about the UDR checkpoints yeah. to my granny in Dublin. This is I was only about five or six at the time, so it must have been about 1990. And it was the first time that I actually was ever afraid of anything that was going on around us at a time. And this is in the 90s, mm-hmm. you know, 30 odd years <clears> after <throat> the time that we're talking about here. But uh, it, it kind of goes to show that, that that legacy of the UDR lived on for, for decades. Oh, yeah, really. yeah. Well, the women who were, I mean, there was whole units of them who were at the same time members of the Ulster Volunteer Force, which is an illegal force. It was them that killed the Miami show bond. I mean, it was a, a legal, uh, illegal UDR checkpoint, but 
all the people in it were all UVF, and they planted the bomb that uh, then exploded prematurely. And only, and that's how we know that it was a UDR checkpoint because you know, some of them were killed on the spot. So, like the level of collusion, it's just uh, I mean, the number of UDR barracks that mysteriously had all their weapons taken, Lisbon Road and Belfast and other places. Like, we're not talking about one or two weapons, we're talking about a, a lorry load of weapons taken out of the barracks. You see that thing you were talking about there about your parents' house being refused mm. and planning permissions. You see, if you're trying to explain that to someone who might not have the experience of living under those kind of conditions, like what would you attribute that refusal to now? Or even at the time? Well, I mean, that's, that's the thing that makes it so senseless because my family had to move because the motorway was been built. We were facilitating that. Obviously, well, I mean, you couldn't have refused it. You would have been moved out forcibly. Uh, but so it was compulsory purchase order. So, okay, these people then have to go and live somewhere, I mean, my family. So there is no rhyme or reason why, um, other than just pure bigotry, that someone just refused to, um, to allow you to build. Like there, there is no other, it's not that you're building in a particular area. My father was building right beside his mother's house, so he was getting the field from the, his parents. Um, maybe they thought that's you know, intensifying, that was right beside the GA pitch, Turin Oaks GA pitch there. So maybe they thought there's too many Catholics now starting to move into this area even though my father obviously was originally from there and we only lived a few miles up the road. So there's no, it's just senseless. But then bigotry, like racism or homophobia or whatever else, it doesn't work on the basis of logic or sense. It's just um, maybe somebody personally has a great beginning. Although my father was well-liked and they never took part in anything. So yeah, it, 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 it's like that there that highlights just how um, on one hand ridiculous it was, but on the other hand how... Uh, just the power that those councils had and those councillors had. It's kind of a microcosm of what was going on in the bigger picture where a group of people yep. were holding on to power for dear life at the cost of a whole section of the community, which has got nothing to do with religion, as you were saying earlier on. It's just got more to do with economic and political power. Well, we even take it, really. Why would anybody in their right mind build a motorway from Belfast to Rondleston and stop at Rondleston? It, it's a village. There is absolutely no... The only reason it dealt was because Lord O'Neill had his estate there. So Lord O'Neill could go quickly from his estate, which is several thousand acres, to Belfast. Like, no, there's no other reason why you would build that. I mean, even now, it's only coming around that they're building um, a better road to Derry. They certainly were trying to build a better road to Derry in, uh, in 1969. So, as you say, like the even planning uh, has, has no rhyme or reason unless it suits... Uh, unionism and particularly big house unionism. But remember, it was a one-party state from the foundation of the state, and that didn't that didn't benefit working-class loyalists either. Um, it was it was it, they had the whole setup, um, the cushy number, um, yeah, and operated it for their own their own advantage. It for well, for the advantage of a very small percentage of uh, upper upper-class unions. And how did that then after the the encounters with UDR and all that, how did that end up kind of, what were the, the next steps for you after well, that? Well, it was uh, between, um, become more aware of, of of the general politics of what was happening. A few people who were a bit older than me um, in school being arrested or interned, interned without trial, which is again an amazing thing whenever you talk to people I've uh, been over time to do presentation to students in uh, King's College in London. And I love what we sent him at the latter part of the 20th century, 
Britain operated an internment camp, internment without trial camp, on the uh, on the edge of Western Europe. This isn't meant to be like the mother of democracies. Like this is only meant to happen in the Soviet Union or China or somewhere. But Britain operated an internment camp where people were imprisoned without trial for up to four years. Um, so I suppose listening to the debates at the Times and, and becoming more interested in it and becoming more aware and then seeing how other people were been arrested, thrown in jail, and then what was happening um, to myself and mates, who, as I say, obviously one time weren't involved, uh, led to me to say what I wanted to do was to join the IRA, and then it's, it's not an easy thing to do if you're in an area that's not known for republicanism, so you don't have someone walking down the street with IRA written on his forehead or her forehead. And, um, but I, I uh, started to hunt about and uh, finally well, made it known in certain circles or some people I thought might have some sort of contact with IRA and uh, finally was approached. Um, check if that was right. I was trying to, people tried to dissuade me from the start of it. Um, always interesting to the people I met. The first two people I met, one was a, a woman, a very professional woman. Um, even at that time, I hadn't even thought of women being in IRA. And their idea was to try to dissuade me. I'd end up in prison or dead. Um, and that would have been the general policy of the IRA at that time. They wanted to see that it wasn't just a, an emotional outburst. But anyway, I eventually ended up um, joining when I was 17, um, shortly after my 17th birthday. As a result of that, I become an active. I ended up being um, identified on a operation one time and had to go on the run when I was 17 and a half. Um, ended up in, in Monaghan um, for a while. Dublin a wee while, and then the rest of the time I was back up in the north on the run. And then in um, 75, there was a lengthy protracted ceasefire um, following the Fakel talks between the IRA and Protestant clergymen and Fakel in the, in the, in the south. Um, at a time where people thought that you know, there was going to be moves, that Britain was maybe leaving, um, there was a lot of big factories closing, like Courtois and ICI and all. The shipyard was badly hit. Really what was happening, we now know, was an economic recession. But uh, it, it had the appearance at the time, I suppose, of maybe Britain economically withdrawn. But at the same time, basically, what they were doing was... I think it was really at that period where um, British intelligence forces, MI5 and all the rest of them, started to really take the North seriously and had compiled a very comprehensive counterinsurgency uh, policy, which had a number of different elements. One was criminalization, which was about the hate blocks and jail and about taking away the recognition as political prisoners and saying everybody were criminals. The other was what they called austerization, which was to uh, make it look like a local thing that was nothing really to do with the British. They were only there as the neutral observers. They were there to keep the peace and to back up the police. So it was a very, the whole idea was to change the whole context. And what really, uh, Unique about that period is the change in language, and language is so critically important. I mean, Irish people are very much into language and words, and whether it's in the English language or the Irish language. But if you notice and you look back, and I had this discussion one time with somebody in the BBC who came to interview me from London, and to her credit, and she took on board what I said when, when she went back and checked the thing. If you look at the change in language in 76, which was the time they brought in criminalization, which basically what they said was after March the 1st, 1976, there is no political conflict. Anybody charged with anything to do with IRA or with loyalism is a criminal and would be treated as a criminal. Um, 
They changed the powers of arrest. They greatly intensified them. They changed the powers of interrogation. Uh, you could be held for seven days without access to a solicitor. Uh, they set up new interrogation centers, um, like golf parks and Castle Ray, which became infamous. And they changed the courts. They got rid of juries and uh, they became one ju a judge called the Diplock Court set up after the report from Lord Diplock. Now, the South of Ireland ended up with their own special courts. So I think there was three judges on them and no jury. So you're talking about a period where everything started to shift around that. And I think that the ceasefire was, if not deliberately concocted, then it was used in that period of, of <coughs> excuse me, of 75 to allow the British to get into a position to do what they were going to do. And part of that was building the heat blocks as they are part of, of Long Cage Prison Camp. Do away with internment at the end of 1975 because um, it was now an embarrassment. Britain at that time was seeking to join the European community, which is interesting now. They've just left it with Brexit. Uh, to have a to be running an internment camp wasn't really, you know, a great image for the Europeans at that time, um, and it had outlived the usefulness anyway. Um, but the language that changed, you suddenly seen things like mafia-style shootouts, Godfathers, sectarian gangs, and so on and so forth. This is, this is language that was never used before, even by the BBC. If you check the BBC records, and this is what I asked this woman to do, and she did to her credit and come back and agreed with me. They, in 75, would still refer to IRA active service units, IRA volunteers. Um, it was regarded as a war. First of March onwards, which is the time, actually, downtown radio station was set up by always up by suspicions that it was assisted at the time because it put out 15-minute bulletins and every bulletin referred to mafia-style shootouts, etc., etc. So the whole idea was to change the um, understanding, if you want to call it, of what was happening, that this wasn't um, centuries-old anti-colonial struggle. This was a local sectarian conflict that uh, the British, God bless them, are trying their best to, to resolve. Um, yeah, it's interesting you say that, Nike. When you compare that to the the language that's been used in North America to describe the the people who totally. are protesting after the number of like police uh, murders, that they're saying that the the protesters are domestic terrorists. Totally. And the thing is, name stuff. name people, and then it it's like that, that gives it a a, a definition. Though, um, so you were arrested in nineteen seventy six yep. first, weren't you? So that you were going straight into the. the I landed into this, yes, in the Crumlin Road Jail, second um, of August. Well, Sackett was arrested and interrogated in Castlereagh, and a few days later ended up in Crumlin Road Jail, um, charged with a tablet murder of a policeman on an attack, a gun attack on a on an RUG patrol, and charged with explosions, and ended up in the, the Crumlin Road Jail, Belfast. Uh, people were coming in in their dozens, literally sometimes, like maybe seven eight people together in groups. Um, no one had yet been sentenced under the new policy. Uh, it was all it was new to everybody, including the prison guards and all the rest of it. Um, and, and more or less, the elements, I suppose, of the old system where the guards had recognised the prisoners as being political. They had their own spokesperson, their own OC, officer commanding. And that sort of still lingered on a wee bit. Um, the first person then to be sentenced on a new regime was Kieran Nugent. He was in the wing, I was in the sea wing. Kieran, uh, and again, it's interesting. Um, Kieran at that time, I think, was only aged about 18. The average age was 19, I was 19, just coming 20. So it's important to remember just how young people were. But even though Kieran was um, aged 18, he already had been interned for about seven, eight months. He had been shot 
seriously injured by loyalists, the guy standing with him was shot dead. He had been charged and put on remand for about five months in criminal jail. So this was actually his third time in jail. He was only 18. Um, I mean, they had such things as schoolboy attorneys, as they were called, and it was compulsory for them to continue their education because they were children. Uh, and you're meant to continue your education until you're 16, um, which they, they resented, of course. So you're talking about very young people and also very naive, including myself. Um, this new policy, criminalization, we know about it now. We didn't really know much about it at that time. It was looked on as another ridiculous thing that the Brits are doing. Uh, I'll be over in six months and be sorted out, and that's, that's it. 76 was a lovely summer, really warm summer. I remember us having a, a meeting in the yard in Seawing in the Cromwell Jail, and the OC was Barney McReynolds, the guy from the market theory who had previously been interned. And this thing it was, right, Kieran's getting sentenced the next week. He was charged by IRA membership and got three years. Um, our policy is we don't wear the prison clothes or do prison work, okay? Everybody, yeah, okay. And then everybody went back to walk on the yard or playing football or whatever. So it was treated as, as, as sort of, you know, calmly as that Kieran got sentenced, was taken down to the H blocks. Nobody had been in the H blocks before, so it was a totally no jail. And probably given his past experience of being in prison a few times, he was the ideal character, the ideal first volunteer to land there because he was a, a very tough nut uh, from the Falls Road. And um, they took him to jail. They told him about the prison uniform. He refused. They stripped him. They beat him up. There's a famous saying about, you you would need to nail it to my back. I mean, it's the only way they'd ever get a prison uniform on him. And he was put into a cell on his own. And... Um, he was naked, and after a while, he was, well, he was given blankets uh, for, for bedding, and he put a blanket around him, and that began what became known as the blanket protest, and it lasted for five years. It intensified into uh, a no-wash protest in March 1978, and it ended with uh, 10 people dying on hunger strike in 1981, so it was something that we had never envisaged at all. Um, and in fact, just earlier this morning, having a conversation with, with, with someone who's an academic and uh, looking at that, that whole policy of the British at that time and wondering what would have happened if they hadn't have included the criminalisation part in their overall counterinsurgency strategy. Because really it was the prison protest that came to the spotlight. If we had still been regarded as political prisoners, they wouldn't have been a mute out of us. We'd have been you know, playing football and doing handicrafts and learning Irish and messing about in the cages, one minute word from us. Um, but that's not what happened. The H-blocks and the situation in Armagh Women's Prison became to, to the fore and actually came to dominate, I suppose. And that, in a sense, regenerated uh, a whole new generation of Republicans. In a way, I suppose that's kind of comparable to the aftermath of Bloody Sunday in that they had to let the Civil Rights March take place and not attack it like that, then many people who ended up in the IRA probably wouldn't have been in the IRA in the first place. Totally, and probably similar to 1916, that executed the leaders. I mean, people in Dublin were spitting on them, uh, the insurrectionists, um, but it was only once they were, were executed and Britain got its pound of flesh that, uh, that the whole tide turned. So it's, it is interesting, I know people talk about history repeats itself or sometimes people don't learn the lessons from it, but, uh, but yeah, that's what happened. So I... So that was the protest started, and people followed. Kieran, I was sentenced in April '77 uh, to life imprisonment. Uh, didn't recognise the court. Was taken down. Same thing happened. Told her where the prison gear refused, and ended up on the 
on the protest and was there until uh, until it finally ended on the 3rd of October 1981. What was your first experience like, the first day you were going into the H-Blocks? Um, <laughs> the very strange one because um, at that time, the time I was sentenced, there was four of us travelled down together, uh, myself and three other guys from New Lodge of Belfast, um, John Pierce and uh, Jared Doherty, Mickey Lachlan, and uh, Mickey had been in jail before. And we knew at that stage that all the blanket men were in H-Block 5, whereas previously that started out H-1, H-2, and young prisoners were kept separated from, from older ones, etc. Um, so we're put in the back of this fan, it's, I mean, it's a blacked out fan and all the rest, and you can't see out of it, and we're, we're driving around. And uh, you could hear the, the screws in the front of it saying there's one for H-2 and three for H-5. And we couldn't get like, why, why is there one going to H-2? Like it should be four going to H-5. And somehow, <laughs> somehow in my head, I thought it was going to be John Pierce, who I thought it was younger than me. And in hindsight, he's probably around the same age as me, or maybe a few months younger. Anyway, the fan pulled up in H-2, back door opens and said, me queuing out. And uh, my heart sort of dropped around my feet somewhere. And um, I was taken in there. What I didn't realise until 10 days later was that H-5 was now going to be filled once he's three hours. They only, they only had space for three people, so it was just by chance. Um, I was been sent into H2, which had up until a few weeks earlier had held like it now. I was taken in the, the circle, um, which is the administrative part of the block, told to strip off. I stripped down to my uh, underpants, was then told, um, get the fucking heap off, said strip. That's why I stripped naked. And when they heard about beatings, when people arrived, and I was bitten on, on, on that happening, uh, they told me to turn around and there was a, there was a group of um, screws down there facing me. And it didn't happen. And it, it, what I learned in later years too was that written on a beating is worse than the actual beating. Because written, written anything uh, that, that you don't like is usually worse than when, when it happens. Um, it was very surreal to be standing there in this wing. There was conforming prisoners in the block. There was prison guards going about. Um, and I'm standing there bollock naked in the middle of uh, this, this circle. And then I was taken down the wings uh, to a cell down at the bottom of the wing. And again, I was saying, I've often um, thought about this moment, walking down the wing, and there's already prisoners there, conforming prisoners, and you know, they, they're not sure where to look at you or not look at you or whatever. And uh, you know you're, you know what the regime's trying to embarrass you out there, so I was walking down, and what I really remember was my hands, because I was thinking, like, do I put my hands across over my privates? You know, Then that looks as if you're embarrassed. <clears throat> At the same time, I didn't really feel like walking in and swinging my arms by the side like in some military fashion. So, so what I only remember is like my, my hands feeling like dead weights, lead weights uh, by my side. Anyway, I was taken down and put in the cell. There was nobody either side of me, so nobody could contact me. I was taken out the next morning again naked to see the governor um, charged with refusing to wear prison clothes to prison work. I read out a statement where I was told to say that I was a political prisoner. I wouldn't be, doing, I wouldn't be wearing prison uniform or doing prison work. Governor said, take his criminal back to the cell. I was taken back to the cell and more or less held there for uh, the next nine days and then finally was moved up to up to H5 and that's when I realised really what, what had happened. Uh, and I get into H5 where there was a block full of blanket men was almost like getting released. You know, it's, <laughs> we hear all this sound about and people shouting out and familiar voices and some people out brushing their cells and all the rest of it. So it was... Um, yeah, but that stage, the protests have been going on for about uh, eight months. 
nine months. So uh, there already was in a, a bit of a routine built up. And that I joined that, and that stayed that way until um, the following year, March uh, 1978. Numbers were intensifying. Another block had opened, H3. And I think at that stage, the... Um, the prison authorities started to think this is this has grown far too long. They had probably never thought it was going to last that length of time. And there was a notable increase in brutality for new prisoners trying to join the protest. And also that time we went out to out to wash, shower, we're allowed two showers a week. The other days we washed in basins in the cell. We found that was now being disrupted. We we're getting out less. Uh, you also at that stage could out to the toilet during the day. You could just shout out your cell number and you'd be let out. We found that that was becoming um Prison guards were, were, were ignoring it. So it seemed like a deliberate policy to really start to clamp down. And we set out to do very minor protests, which was to withdraw cooperation. We said we weren't going to brush out our cells. Uh, and we weren't going to wash in basins in the cell. We wanted better washing facilities, uh, which is a bit of an irony that our protests set out to get better washing facilities, and we actually ended up on a no-wash protest. The response of the regime to our initial thing of re- refusing to... Um, brush out was to take two people, put them on the punishment block and charge them under this ancient rule of sedition and treason uh, where they could be held for 40 days. Uh, they went on a hunger and thirst strike. Uh, it ended up hitting the media outside, which was really the first time that the media commented on the protest. They were brought back, um, but our, our minor protest continued. Again, the, the response of the regime was totally over the top. They came in one day, ripped out all the the furniture we had in the cells. Um, people weren't getting out to the toilet. Piss pots were overflowing. We're trying to throw axemen out the window. Prison guards were throwing it back in the window. And within three days, we ended up in a situation where we were now smearing the walls of our cells with, with shit, basically, and pouring the urine out the door. And that became known as the no-wash protest. Or again, going back to language, the Northern Ireland office referred to it as a dirty protest, which is, again, I think is an important difference. Uh, the irony being that we set out to try to get better <laughs> wash facilities and we ended up in a wash protest. I didn't wash the next three years. Uh, that ended only on the 2nd of March, 1981, the day after Bobby Sands began his hunger strike, and he had ordered that the, uh, the no-wash protest end the following day. You see that period of time whenever you were on the no-wash protest, it, do you have any kind of standout moments when you're looking back now and you're thinking, like, how did you even get through that? Oh, yeah, there's a pile of... Um, I mean, I'm actually writing in a minute uh, more about that, uh, taking advantage of this uh, ASO to, to, to do that. There. I mean, I've written a lot in the past about that time period, but I haven't actually written up a full memoir on, on the thing. Um, so, there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of different times. There's a lot of laughs uh, amongst ourselves. There's a lot of ingenuity uh, in terms of how we overcame a lot of the the barriers to communication between prisoners inside and between us inside and the world outside. There's some very um, harrowing moments, like the forced washes, where people were, were just brutalized. I mean, when they started them, um, they took five people out specifically uh, to start these. One of them was Martin Horson, who later died in hunger strike. Another one was Tom Boy Loudon. Um, and three others, uh, Tabak Bradley, Jake McManus, and uh, I've got Joe from Tyrone, uh, Joe McNulty. 
and they forcibly washed them, held them in a chair, cut their hair off, washed them in a, in a bath with uh, dax scrubbers, and then held them down and shaved them. That evening, Martin Horseman was taken to the prison hospital with two fractured toes. Uh, Joe McNulty was taken outside with a broken nose. Uh, Tomboy Loudon thought that he had a broken nose, but it was uh, just badly bruised and all. Um, just a severe, atrocious beating. And then the person in charge of the block, as in the prison guard. And under his general there's three blocks on protest, three, four and five. The people in charge of both uh, three and five were Catholics, one from Toronto and another one from Armagh. And uh, the one in charge of H3, Paddy Choquere, was later years um, executed by the IRA. He uh, called out the OC, IRA OC, and said, um, I have instructions to why should we put in this block? I'm going to carry out my orders. If any of you people so much as breathe heavily on my officers, what you've seen this morning is only a foretaste of what's to come. So it was a very deliberate policy to basically trying to beat people off the, off the protest. The way they were able to do it, which is really interesting, is you, know, you look back at them, not in any way comparing it with the concentration camps in the Second World War, but to be able to carry out the forced washings, and I've seen the, the confidential documentation back and forth, no, in more recent years, that went back and forward between the Northern Ireland Office and the, and the prison authorities. They needed a doctor to say that, um, that our health was in danger, and they got a doctor who worked in the jail at the time, Dr. Amazon, to say that people had um, body lice. Now, nobody had ever had body lice or head lice. People were dragged out to see him. Um, he stood about 15, 20 foot away. This is all well documented by accounts and normally sort of my time. And, and said, yeah, head lice, body lice. And that authorised, that gives the, uh, the tick in the right box to authorise the uh, regime to carry out the thing. And then the correspondence is addressing to read that the Northern Ireland office makes sure that it puts the onus totally on the chief medical officer. Um, we know that it's going to cause a lot of conflict, but we need to carry out the uh, instructions of the chief medical officer. So the, the, the conditions in, in which you were living, did that kind of peak? And then, then the result was the 1980 hunger strike and the subsequent uh, hunger strike in 1981? It went on... Um, I mean, the interesting thing was once we started to know why, sit down and hit the, the media and all, and, and in a sense, you know, I felt more proactive. Um, that we're actually doing something rather than just sitting as we had been for the previous 18 months. Um, but that went on for that length of time, 1979. There was talk of a hunger strike then uh, to coincide with the Pope's visit to Ireland. We were advised not to do it because it was going to embarrass the likes of Cardinal Tommaso Fee, who at the time was having with secret talks with the Northern Ireland offices here, he could resolve anything. Uh, that was put back. The National Anti-Heach Block Armagh Committee was established at that time, then 1979, to again coordinate all the protests and raise um, publicity about the situation. So all of that was going on in various behind-the-scenes talks, etc., etc. And when it came to a point that none of that had uh, come to any successful conclusion, um, the decision in October... 1980, was to have a hunger strike, which began on the 27th of October. Seven people, including the OC at that time, Brendan Hughes, um, started it along with six others. And it lasted for 53 days. We had five demands, which was the right to wear our own clothes, the right not to do prison work, to have free association, etc., visit parcels, access to educate, 
excuse me, education. Um, again, that got a lot of highlight, a lot of protests, a lot of marches, a lot of TV coverage, and a lot of behind the scenes, uh, to and fro and going on. Sean McKenna, one of the people on the hunger strike, who had been kidnapped by the British Army back in 76. He was in the south of the border. They came over across the border, kidnapped him, took him over the north, and, uh, and then sentenced him, put him in prison. His father was one of the first internees and one of the first guinea pigs, as they were referred to. He was tortured at the start of uh, internment. Sean ended up in a critical stage, um, and Brendan Hughes uh, ordered that he be, be fed, that he would, he would get medical attention, and they come off the hunger strike. Bobby Sands had taken over as the, as the OC, the officer commanding from Brendan Hughes. Um, he was, Brendan was on that hunger strike himself as well at the time it was called off, wasn't he? Brendan was on that hunger strike as well, yes. And he couldn't be on the hunger strike and be OC, so he had stopped being um, OC when, when uh, Bobby went on to it. And in that sense, some confusion because he didn't have an authority to call off the hunger strike. He could have left it himself voluntarily if he wished, or others could have. Um, Bobby Sands was the only one who could have called it off, but at the end of the day, Bobby was left with a fair company, the Uncle Shake was called off. There was a document uh, which he was in given that, that night, which he said afterwards, you know, he could have driven a, a coach and four through it if the Uncle Shake had still been on. Um, but he was still prepared to see what he, what, what he could do with it. Um, he was allowed to go about the camp to different blocks and meet with the different block OCs the following day. He actually landed into my cell that night, the night the longest strike ended on the 18th of December, 1980. Um, 30 of us had joined the hunger strike just three days earlier, um, more as a publicity thing probably. Uh, my door opened, cell door opened about 9 o'clock in the evening. Bobby walked into it and uh, it was mistaken. He had asked to see Pat McEwen, who was uh, the OC of our block, and who later ended up in hunger strike, to tell him that the hunger strike was off um, and that he would be meeting the OCs the next morning. Again, the prison regime facilitated that. The next couple of days, Bobby met with um, the other OCs to see what how things go ahead, uh, met with the prison governor to see if there was any... Well, basically to see where, where they prepared to now really look at things or come to some compromise and it was apparent within a couple of days that they weren't all Bobby wasn't allowed anymore to go around the blocks the other people weren't allowed to meet him and it was a very clear indication that we were getting off and we were actually presented with um, a text written text from the Northern Ireland office telling us what was available if we all conformed and it was a period of um, a mixture of disillusionment uh, anger of the way the uh, we had been treated, the way the previous hunger strikers have been treated, um, but I suppose the British thought that well, they now won. You know, we had been on protests at that stage for over four years. Maggie Thatcher had always referred to the hunger strike as we played our last card, but had the hunger strike, and basically probably they were thinking I've given them nothing, so I mean they'll just fall off one by one and, and conform, and that wasn't the dominant mood at all. Throughout the block, there was there was absolute anger about what had happened. There were some demands to join or to start a hunger strike immediately. Thankfully, Bobby was more level-headed and uh, was able to, say, try to bend over backwards to see if there was any other option. Um, he also knew that the IRA leadership on the outside had been totally opposed to the first hunger strike. They were now adamant against, adamantly against the second one. And he had to argue his case that, you know, to move forward in the jail situation and, and even to keep, I suppose, cohesion um, that 
really a second hunger strike was 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 what was necessary. Like the second hunger strike then was set up in a way that people were going on it in a staggered fashion. Yep. Um, well, you know, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, you know, when you're thinking back at that time now, um, it's like a, a very sad time. And uh, do do you find it hard to talk about it when you're when you're recalling it? It's been a different time, and I've spoken in numerous times and done televised interviews or done presentations. And there's times that, um, yeah, could be talking like this for an hour or four, a couple hours, and be fine. And then there's there's other moments where I think it's just a flash of memory, a moment, you know, a face, a word that just comes to mind. And uh, I mean, I've uh, done a bars to say, I mean, just started crying uh, or not been able to speak. For, for a minute or so to compose myself again. So it's, um, yeah, because there were, there were people who were, were all friends and people who we knew, they're all blanket men. And uh, I know there's different politics at end, some divisions and et cetera, and even between, say, um, IRA and INLA. But at the time, there was no divisions. We were all blanket men, same as the women in Armagh Jail. Um, there was... The camaraderie built up over that five years of intense protest that was was unbelievable. Um, you couldn't have just come into jail and had a hunger strike where 10, ten people died. It was never going to happen. Um, whereas in 1981, um, people who were, were dying, first of all, didn't want to die, wanted to live. And I mean, I talked to a lot of them and spent the last, some of their last minutes with them in the prison hospital. Um, but were prepared to die if others benefited from it. Um, and that was a reflection of, of that sort of level of solidarity built up in that really intense conditions that we had uh, endured over that, that period of time. Um, so it was a very particular mindset. It's kind of, uh, in a way, it's ironic in that the haste blocks were specifically built to, to, to isolate the prisoners and break them away from each other and from the outside movement as well. And from, from hearing you talk and from speaking to other people as well the field the field in that because of the the strength of the camaraderie that you had and and the conviction that you carried out the protest with is clear indication that the field and what they set out to do oh it was totally and i mean it was i never envisaged that either but even even during the whole protest yeah the communication between us and with outside and i mean communication was all through smuggled letters written cigarette papers uh, wrapped in cling villain hidden in the mouth or various other body orifices and that whole channel was kept open by our families and community members and young women who come up to visit the jail uh, sometimes the partners of, of prisoners who were there or the sisters or whoever else um, come up in the morning to smuggle letters out I mean Bobby Sands that was like this amazing he could write a, a column we call it a common communication get it smuggled out in the morning to the Army Council and have an answer back that afternoon. There was an absolute river of information. Communication went past the prison guards and every now and again they caught one or two, but uh, not much. And, and that was only made possible by, and what we're talking about is very, very ordinary people, uh, very ordinary lives, don't see themselves as being um, the forefront of struggle. We're not IRA volunteers, a lot of them, the people who are visiting the jail. Um, and it was them, and, and probably that's been the same worldwide. It's been the ordinary person. I mean, hit even using that word ordinary. Um, but the people who, in the moment, step up to the plate 
they know what else to be done. They know it's people from their community. It's maybe their own family members, and they know they're not criminals, and they're not going to allow anybody to criminalise them. What was your experience then, Lawrence, whenever you started to re- refuse the food from that point onwards? Um, well, the process was, um, I mean, you're already named on the media that that it was starting. Um, they come around and offer you breakfast and all the rest of it and uh, refuse it. What they always have, but they, they set the meal in your cell. The breakfast sits there until lunchtime. Lunch, the lunch is set in, the breakfast is taken out, tea time. The lunch is taken out. So there's, there's always food in your cell. Uh, even at a point where you, where you couldn't physically eat it, even if you wanted to, and you're not going to. Um, I was taken out to the doctor to be told that I was in danger of my life. I was weighed. Um, I was 10 and a half stone at the time, and I'm six foot two. I don't think I'm that overweight at the moment, but I'm, you know, I'm probably about 13 stone and probably about 12 and a half is my sort of regular weight. What it reflects is everybody was malnourished that time. Like I was two, two stone under a bit, um, as, as were most people. Uh, blood pressure was taken, all the rest of it. And then after that was it, uh, after 21 days, taken to the prison hospital. The main thing at the start was just feeling cold. We're always told to drink, try to drink at least six pints of water and to take salt. You need salt for uh, your electrical impulses in your, in your brain. Another, um, which after a while doesn't become bad. You just dip your finger in a thing of salt and, and water, and that's all we took during the hunger strike. And you know, when it, whenever you moved into the the present the hospital wing, were you able to uh, communicate with each other and stuff, or are you are you put into your own cell? Uh, well, both. I um, mean, the, the irony is when you arrived in the prison hospital, while you were in the blocks, you were. Um, Refusing to abide by prison rules and regulations, so therefore we're, we're punished and not allowed all these things like radios or cigarettes running. When you're in the hospital, you weren't. <laughs> you're in the hospital, you have to wear pajamas, so therefore you're not refusing to wear the prison uniform, so you're not breaking any rules anymore. And because you're in the hospital, it's deemed that you're not fit for prison work, so you're not. So you're no longer breaking prison rules. You're, you might be on hunger strike, but you're no longer breaking prison rules. So now you can get a radio and get newspapers. Uh, the cigarettes, although you weren't allowed to keep them in your cell, they were kept at the top of the wing. I you one screw, stole most of them on at one time. Um, you could go out in the evening for association time, watch the TV, be about together with the other uh, hunger strippers, go out to the yard for exercise if you wanted to go. And we did at the start until it became very, I mean, literally walked around the yard maybe once, twice, and then you sat on a on a chair, you're allowed to take a chair out and, hang and you had to take a couple of pillows out to sit on because what you discovered, I discovered very shortly after I moved to the prison hospital, I took a bath rather than a shower and I was told that, you know, not to have it too warm because because you're weak. Um, but you already knew, you knew in the morning you're getting up increasingly, you had to get up a bit slower or you'd be very dizzy. Um, but anyway, I, I, I took a bath which I thought was lukewarm and uh, I almost thought I was taking a heart attack. Um, I'd highlighted just how weak it was, but the other thing that I'd highlighted was when I tried to sit in the bath, I couldn't because I realised my hips had more or less disappeared. What, uh, what, how far, do you remember how far along in your, in your hunger strike you were at that, at that time? That was, that was still, probably, I mean, it was within the 20 odd days because it was the hospital and it was moved there after um, 20 odd days. Um, and after that, then it's just a matter of, of um, getting weaker and weaker after about 40 days. Your eyesight starts to go seeing double, um, pretty clearly double, but double, and then that became uh, more like a fuzzy sort of thing. Then the, the lights start to ignore you, annoy you. 
and you can't read anymore, um, etc. Not that there's a lot of reading, but you're not really in a, a mood to be. Aye. I mean, you might read some newspapers. The other thing that really highlighted them was as your sape um, decreased, your sense of smell increased and increased amazingly, like where you started to smell the water. And I can tell you the water doesn't smell that good, depending on what it was. Like at one stage, they were bringing us in bottles of spring water from Scotland somewhere, um, sparkling water, which was the only thing we could drink because the ordinary water in the, the top of the river just, um, yeah, just just smelled the smell of floor polish, smell of from the kitchens cooking, anything at all, which then starts to really annoy you as well. So it's interesting just how the body responds. You know, at this um, point in time, with user on the hunger strike, were you kind of in your head thinking that you were going to be coming up to the end of your time on earth because of the protest or were you just thinking this is going to finish up sometime and we'll be able to um, recover from it well we're always hoping for a, a resolution to it we're always hoping you're always just i mean that's what i always hope um something's going to happen something's going to turn up um until it gets to a particular stage, and then you realize that you're next, like after Mickey to find out, and you realize the next long was one on it. But you also get to the stage where you're so weak, um, and you've been on it so long, so you know how long other people have lasted. You know, you know that you know you're within a well, you can be within a minute or within a couple of days of dying. I always thought, given like the time I was on it, I would have uh, died suddenly, as, as Tom McAwee did. Uh, I spoke to Tom in the morning. Uh, he was sitting up bed smoking a cigarette. And uh, he was dead that afternoon, dead quickly. Uh, some other people had a more prolonged death. Um, what happened, um, I'm conscious just of our time situation here, uh, on this, is that um, I mean, as the hunger strike went on, our, I mean, our families were caught in this awful tragic situation. They weren't IRA or NLA volunteers. They were watching their uh, relatives die one after the other. They totally supported us. They wanted us to get our demands. But I think it came to a point where they, they lost hope that that was, that was going to happen and there already had been a number of families who intervened when their relative was became unconscious and what happened was if, if you became unconscious what's called power of attorney shifts to the next of kin and generally that was to the women wives or mothers uh, because they were the ones who visit the prison most often and then they could decide um, to authorise medical intervention which meant really giving you vitamins and glucose and that had happened in a few cases, and now then that the, once it happened, it, it, it snowballed in terms of the media and people like Father Fall, who had been a strong supporter of us for a long time, um, really went against the hunger strike and said like a, a good mother or a good wife would uh, intervene and save her, her relative. Um, my family were allowed in after 68 days, I was still lucid. Um, my father and my sister and brother asked me to come off the hunger strike. I said I wouldn't. My mother never asked me to do that. Uh, it wasn't because she was staunchly Republican. She wasn't. But me and her had always had a a very good relationship, even though I was, say, away from home when I was 17. Uh, and the next time she seen me was in Monaghan on the run and then after that probably in jail and such like. Um, I don't remember anything the 69th day, though apparently I was still speaking in the morning of the 70th day, which was on uh, a Sunday. Apparently, what the doctor did was they check uh, reflexes, like knees and elbows and all the rest of it. There's, there's no movement and I haven't been speaking for about 12 hours. And at that point, the doctor pronounced me a, a deep coma. 
Um, so my mother was told, and she's now aware of this because of what had happened to her situations, and uh, she authorised medical intervention, um, which it said to me when I was still lucid, and I never really understood at the time what she meant. Under, I think I understand now. She said, "You know what you have to do, and I know what I have to do." And said in a very, very mild-spoken woman, and I think, and she was a religious woman. I think that in her head, if I had died outright, just like suddenly, then that was God's will or something. I had pursued that. If, however, I ended up in a situation where I was unconscious, and now she could determine um, what to do, and she would do what she felt she had to do. Yeah. And um, and that was it. I, I was I recovered, came out of coma in the intensive care of the Royal Victoria Hospital in the Falls Road. I remember it was a woman's female voice telling me where I was. I was blind. Um, people often ask, no, were you glad? I says, like, I was neither happy to be alive nor sad to be alive. I just knew I existed. If you think of yourself at some point where you've been really tired and then multiply that at least 100 times, and that's where we were like, you're not just physically tired or exhausted, but mentally and psychologically, because everything has been to try to keep, to try to keep going, to try to live, to try to live, hoping that there would be a resolution. And then get to that point where you know there's not really going to be one for you. Um, but to be honest, there's a sort of calm place. It's not that you're looking forward to dying, but it's almost like there's no need to keep fighting any longer, you know. Um, but you're just at that point where you're you're absolutely totally exhausted. I was then moved to the military hospital. Uh, to join the others who had already been taken off it, and then uh, one by one they were moved back to the blocks. I was moved back after only over three weeks prior to that they were keeping people outside for about maybe six weeks. The hunger strike was still going on um, when I was brought back, but it, it ended I think about three days later. Um, and we got the right to wear, we had five demands, we got the right to wear our own clothes, which is only one of Five demands, but it was the most important one. Symbolically, it meant we had never wore the prison uniform. We'd said we'd never wear it. Uh, more on a more practical level, it allowed us for the first time in five years to get out of the prison cell, um, which is what happened. We started to plan, organize, and strategize for the future. We were devastated that uh, ten friends had just died, um, but we were totally determined that we would get those outstanding demands by using whatever method was necessary. And that was the other important thing, that after that, then, I mean, I've often looked at 81 as the one that is sound cliched, but the end of rebellion and the start of revolution, because remember Ernie O'Malley writing out from uh, jail, that I personally remember him, but I've written about him, I've read about him writing out from jail post-1916, about how Ireland had created great rebels, but not so good revolutionaries. Um... And I applied, and our situation was that, yeah, we took all the Brits could throw at us during the whole blanket protest. Uh, there was never going to be a physical protest like that again in the jail. Blanket protest, no wash protest, 10 people down on the street. That, that was finished. So in a sense, we were robbed of that sort of physical response when it was going to have to be something different. It was going to have, have to be something where uh, we have to think very carefully what we're doing and plan and strategize and stick to it. And put like the old Irish and like a and we became very click in the years afterwards and we used legal processes, we used passive protest and really um, Sk in any, skipped out of the jail as well oh well yeah, skipped out of the jail well that was, that was the funny thing, the, the, the mass 
the skip happened two years after, less than two years after the end of the hunger strike. Prior to the skip happening, the prison rule was that you had to do prison work. After the escape, the prison rule was you're not allowed to do prison work. So we had one another demand, meaning we weren't allowed out of, out of the blocks anymore because in their rush to implement or enforce their policy of having to do prison work, what they didn't realise was that dozens upon dozens of IRA volunteers were going about the jail, mapping out the outline of it, watching the gates to see how they opened, making tools in the metal fabrication workshop and our workshops that would assist in the escape. And I always think it's really poetic that whenever Sir James Hennessy came over to do the report <clears throat> into the, the mass escape and he was he was looking at the, the list and saying, so hold on a minute, let, let me get this. So Bobby's story, who RUC's been trying for years to get into jail, he's an orderly in the circle here and he can walk about from one wing to another. Jerry Kelly, who's a history of attempted escapes from Long Cash, he's another orderly. Beck McFarlane, who was the OC during the, the hunger strikes, he's another orderly. Like what was like what was in people's heads and the screws were saying that we were told they're just criminals. So it was a and it sounds a very poetic way in their in their attempt yeah. to criminalize, they didn't realise that we were disciplined IRA volunteers who were going to take the first opportunity to escape. And then the jail I mean, okay, they, they made various attempts after that to clamp down on us again and whatever, but they all failed because if you read about any jail, it only functions with largely the, the, the cooperation of the prisoners, um, unless you're going to use mass coercion, and that's not going to be politically acceptable. So they had to eventually months because we had six, seven, eight hundred disciplined volunteers who would all act in a coordinated fashion. There was no way the jail could do anything other than agree. And all we, what we often said to them, we don't want the jails to be a battle place. Like, I'm happy to go out and meet a governor and be, be reasonable and be amicable and be good-natured, civil. And that's the way it became in later years. Um, I mean, the irony is I'm leaving here now to go and meet a former senior prison governor to help me with, uh, or prison official, to help me with some of the research that I'm doing for this this memoir. And by the time I left the prison, which was 11 years after the hunger strike, I mean, I've been in first name terms with prison governors, um, prison guards in the wings. Um, there was no issues. Uh, all of them, the normal issues all the time, you no know, Food visits, um, humanitarian parole, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. More or less, what it all had been prior to them bringing in the policy of criminalisation on the first of March, nineteen seventy-six. Lawrence, I'm conscious of time here, and I don't want to keep you. Um, so, I'm very grateful for the time that you've already given us. Here. Uh, I'm really glad that, that we got to spend this uh, time chatting today. So, Gura Kedmi Lamagut. Gura Kedmi Lamagutsa. Here, Brin Saltas and Kajalas and Lad. Okay. Anyway, Slan Slan. Slan Slan. Slan Slan Kapoor.